Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is in two locations. The first one is in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 27 through 36. Excuse me. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then over into the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And this is the word of the Lord. So this morning, I want to tell the story of someone who is one of my best friends in this life, and he's been a friend for a very long time. I don't think he's here today. He was supposed to be, but that's, you know, you never know with this guy. Uh, Some of you know him as well. This is Ian Gilmartin, and Ian G, as I call him, and you'll find out in a few minutes another nickname that we have that you're never supposed to say in church, but anyway, that'll keep you interested. Um... Ian is not here because yesterday he was supposed to come to the service for Tierney's dad. We were going to drive out to White Rock together. and I got a text from Ian in the morning, and he said, I can't make it. I've got a migraine. And, and if you know Ian, he's one of, the, one of the people that you know that that kind of thing just never surprises you. He, uh, he might have some kind of ailment or difficulty, and, uh, and so, you know, you say, I hope you, hope you get well soon and and are able to make it down soon. I would have loved it if he could be here, but we'll record it so that he can hear it. What's that? Yeah? This isn't working? Oh. Well, then I don't want to wear 
What you might not know about Ian is that he's a, a superstar. You know part of that because if you've been to a dessert evening or something like that where he cooks, he is a master. But when I met Ian when we were teenagers, he was a superstar in, in very many ways, still is. He was, when I was getting to know this church culture, Ian was the go-to guy to know about like this kind of church and camps and Particularly Lakeside Bible Camp, Ian was um, one of the stars there on staff. And I got a job around that time at McDonald's, which, I mean, I was really happy to get that job at that time. It wasn't really easy to get jobs then. And uh, I, I knew I was doing all right because I was making $3 an hour. And, uh, and then they gave me a raise uh, after a few months. They told me, not to, they, they gave me a really positive performance evaluation and upped my wage to 310. And uh, But Ian, and I didn't even know him until after, so I started working at McDonald's, then came here, and then I found out that one of the guys who works grill, and that means you're a superstar, is Ian Gilmartin. And he was a star at McDonald's as well. He had weird jobs after that. Uh, when we were younger, Ian had a job where he would drive rocks to Seattle for a, a chemistry company overnight and so knowing Ian he probably had classic rock blared he got more than one speeding ticket um, I think it was just the cost of business I remember I think he worked in a gas station too is that right Bill and then he worked he worked in a gas station and then he also worked doing the night bookkeeping for a, a motel here on the North Shore uh, those kinds of jobs he also actually one of the reasons I ride my bike is Ian. He was really my inspiration because he, before anybody I knew rode their bike a, a really ridiculous amount, Ian rode his bike a really ridiculous amount. He rode everywhere. And one year he invited me to ride down with them to South Whidbey Island to Lakeside, the church camp. And I was just young enough and kind of dumb enough that I went, okay, I'll do that. And Ian helped me all the way down. Uh, then he got hit by a car when he was cycling. And it was part of a little bit of a piece of maybe you can look at some times where things kind of turned in a different way for Ian. That was one of those times. In some ways, maybe he was never the same after that. He was unable to ride as much. And we knew as really close friends, Jen and I and others, that there were physical struggles health-wise and maybe mental health struggles as well. But he continued to be one of the most fun people that I, that I knew. One of the things that I told Ian about was the movie Big Night. Uh, has anybody here seen the movie Big Night? I just, oh, yeah, really? Nobody else put their hand up. I see that hand. Um, thank you, Jennifer. Uh, Big Night is a great movie. It's pretty slow, so if you like, really, it's it's focuses on two brothers. I think it's 1950s, New York City. They're Italian immigrants, and they start a restaurant. And that's basically the movie. But the problem is the food at their restaurant, is, am I getting it right, Chris? Have you seen it? Thank you. Uh, the food at their restaurant is like the best anywhere, but they can't get customers. It's hard for them as they're starting their business. So another guy who's had a more established Italian restaurant kind of nearby in the neighborhood 
He's also an Italian immigrant. He's older than them. He kind of befriends them, and he's going to help them out is kind of the key piece of the movie. But he has... So some of you have to forgive me for... I won't say it. Okay, I'll self-censor. He has a term of endearment for friends of his, this older Italian guy. I think some of it's because he's ESL, so he doesn't know that there's an obscenity in the term of endearment. So his term of endearment is that he'll slap his friend on the back and he'll say, hey, king guy. Is that good censoring? But he'll say it. And that's his term of endearment. Hey, king guy. So Ian loved this movie. She's going to count people. She's not terribly offended by that. I don't think. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Remember when Todd used to work at Sutherland? I might as well say it now. (laughs) Um, Um, so Ian not only liked the movie, but as someone who was gaining interest in food and cooking, it's a real foodie movie, he decided that not only would he watch it, but once a year he would gather some of his closest friends and he would make the best meal ever, make a big night, that's what the center of the movie is, and we'd watch this movie. Also, he took to using that term of endearment with some of his closest friends. So Ian and I, that's a nickname we had back and forth. Thank you, Lord. My apologies. But honestly, God's fine with it. You might not be, but he's good. Anyway, that was in mid-late 1990s. In 2010, 2011, Ian's mom, Joyce, became ill. I remember, I could feel it just like it's today, being down in, in this church, in the kitchen. Oh, Ian is here. Ian, I see you. Okay. Um, I remember being downstairs in the kitchen, and Joyce was getting ready for a breakfast, communion breakfast or something. She could run camps and kitchens and just the best. One of the best people any of us have ever known. And she said, um, and she looked like she was in pain, and I talked to her, just the two of us in the kitchen. It's pretty early still. And she said, they still haven't figured out what's wrong with my back. But it's so painful. You know where the story's going. It didn't take long until they found out what was wrong with her back after test, after test, after test, after test. It was multiple myeloma. That's, am I getting it right that that's a bone cancer? Bone and blood kind of cancer? Extremely painful. And the prognosis, if you're diagnosed with this, is not good. I think, again, I didn't check all the stats on this, about five years is the maximum. And so what do we do? We prayed. We prayed and prayed. And if you were at this church at that time, it'd be like we're praying for Jenny Van Hoekstraten now. People come and say, oh, Jenny's, we're praying for Jenny again. We're praying for Joyce. I met with Ian, who had, at that time, been in some of these physical and mental health struggles. And I remember meeting with him down at uh, J.J. Bean at Park and Tilford. I always remember this meeting. And it was like... I'm a great friend of Ian's. Like, I mean, I, I love him so much. But I knew I had kind of a pastoral role at this point as well, and so it was a little more serious. And I said, Ian, you got to be strong for your mom, you know, and for your dad. And he said, with all honesty and resolve, he said, I know, I, I will be. I really will be. And I knew it was to wish as much as determination. I remember that feeling that you can have in prayer where you're praying for healing. That's why I'm introducing this story, because as was mentioned, we're going to talk about healing and our scripture reading 
was about healing. And in a church, when you're praying for someone, you have that kind of positive tension that doesn't always feel good, though, where we pray and you think, are we praying enough? And I remember Joyce's sister, June, would come to me and she would say, we need to be praying more. We need to have like maybe a, an overnight vigil or, or get more people praying. And of course, as a minister, you, you carry that sense of, well, if we get 11 people praying, is that enough? Maybe we need, maybe the line where God really hears is like 221. And after, after the 220th person, then it'll work or something. You know, these things that, when you're honest, right? If just three people pray, that might not be enough. Of course, these are the desperations you reach. And June just didn't know what else to do, of course. We prayed. We did meet and pray, and good news came. Joyce was doing much better. The word remission was used. The question was asked, was she healed? Some people right away said, she's healed. And then the disease asserted itself again. Joyce back in the hospital and eventually palliative care, and we prayed. And then Ian, who had determined to be strong, like you all determined to be strong, right? I received word that Ian was in the hospital. What? Not Joyce, Ian? In fact, Ian was in ICU. And it's unclear if he's going to live. Didn't exactly know why, and it didn't really, you know, when you pray for someone in that situation, so what happened, what happened? And I knew that Ian had struggles with medication before and other challenges that are associated with some of the struggles he had had. And so it was just, I knew a bunch of reasons why he might be there, and that was enough. But he was in a coma. I think about 10 days or so, something like that. So then we prayed for Ian and Joyce at the same time. For a stretch, they were both in Lionsgate. I mean, I'm looking at Bill right now, and even sorry to talk about this, it's so intimate and personal. But Bill would go from palliative care down to ICU. And somehow, in our weakness, God is made strong. You kept going. I know the drill from ICU and the hospital because I've been a volunteer chaplain there. And uh, at that time, it's changed slightly now, but there was a room outside the doors of ICU, two doors that you can't pull open. They have to open up from the inside, the nurse pressing a button. And, you know, you just can't go in there. Even family members are restricted at times and how many. And as a minister, I can visit... Uh, but just outside those doors, at this time it was in the room. Now I think it's on the wall. But in the room there was a phone. And as soon as you picked up the phone, it went, it rang right in the nurse's station. You didn't have to press a button or anything. And you would say, I'm here to visit so-and-so. I'm a family member. I'm a spouse. And, and I would say, I'm a I'm minister and friend of Ian in there. And they always said, come on in. But uh, a side note, though, is... I'll just share this with you, just let you know a bit about my prayers and my heart. When you're the minister, or even a community member, but for me it's the role of minister, in one place, one church over a period of time, particularly if that's a smaller church, and I'm saying that's all blessing, is that you walk through the same landscape of emotion and grief. So some of you will face great difficulty, or I might, and I will come and visit you in the hospital, or your family member in ICU, 
And when I am there, I will remember. I will look, and I'll be able to turn my head and think, that's where Darren Bissell died. Or that's where Kathy came back to life, Kathy Miller, which, by the way, is almost the same space. Or that's where Grace died. The Desert Fathers, real spiritual masters in our faith from hundreds of years ago, their line for this is, stay in your cell. Your cell will teach you everything. What they mean is, and they didn't know how much how bad it would be by now, 2017, people think that the way to learn the most in life and experience the most in life is gather up the most experiences. But the truth is, the more you can pay attention to your life right now, as it is, the particulars of your little life, that's where you'll learn the most important things that you need. Stay in your cell. Your cell will teach you everything. I'm confident in that. I'm glad you have experiences traveling the world and all those other things, but those aren't where you will learn the most important things. So I see you. I visit Ian in there. It's not like other places in the hospital. It's quiet other than the machines because many of those people are unconscious. And there's not rooms. There's like a central station. Some of you have been in this type of place. There's like a central nurse's station, and then, not in the shape of this, but then like a pie, there's little rooms that go off of that central station with a sliding glass door on most, not all, of those rooms. Ian was in one of those spaces, very small, fit the bed and some machines and maybe a chair. That's where Ian was. In this coma, and what do you do when you visit somebody in a coma? Well, as a pastor, of course, you can pray and bring your Bible and read Scripture. But what if that's one of your best friends ever? You do that, but you also just say, Ian. And then you pray, you really pray, God, don't let him die. Heal him. Bring him back to life. You, you in your prayers, defy what you're seeing. Part of your prayer is to say, No! We prayed for Ian, and we prayed for Joyce. One day, I went to visit Ian, and I picked up that little phone, and I said, uh, "It's my name's Todd, I'm minister and friend of Ian. And as soon as I said that, the nurse seemed to kind of stop and said, Oh, um, I'm sorry, you can't come in right now. Which I've never really, it's never really happened, and, and so I said, okay. I'm already getting a bit nervous. And so the nurse said, I-, I guess you can come back in about an hour. I said, okay. And I hopped the phone. And we only lived a couple blocks away at the time. And I remember walking home. And I remember thinking and praying. I thought, is Ian, is Ian dead? And something's happening in there. And that's why. Because there had been no signs, at least that I knew of. That. And I prayed again, God. Please don't allow him to be dead, but what happens if he is? And all this stuff around healing, right? So I walked home, and about an hour or so later, I walked back up again. And now I was determined to kind of have some kind of strength to me, you know? Like, I'm a good friend, but family's probably going to be there. And Okay, i got to do this. And so I pick up the phone, and they say, okay, you can come in now. And I walk in, and his place was, when you walk in, you turn to the left, and then his little space was right there. 
And as I made that turn, I noticed there were a number of people right outside of his sliding glass door. That's not necessarily a good sign. There were doctors there. When doctors are around, not just nurses around, something's happened. But they weren't in Ian's space, which made me a little more troubled. They were standing outside that space, and they were talking. And I remember I thought, okay. Uh, And nobody seemed to notice me. Bill was there. Uh, My friend Michael Bolt, who's one of the doctors at ICU at Lionsgate, he was there. He's a doctor for Ian. Still is, I think. And uh, I kind of shuffled my way around the crew of them. And I got ready to look into that room, and I could tell that the machines weren't really on anymore. And so I thought, okay. I still couldn't see Ian. I turned. I looked in the room. Now the people are kind of behind me. So I'm just looking straight in Ian's room. I can see it right now. And Ian's not lying down anymore. He's sitting up, pillow against his back, His eyes are wide open. He's got a big Ian G grin on his face. And he sees me. And his eyes kind of light up. And he says, hey, fucking guy. It's my second favorite resurrection. So I went in. I was just, I was, what's happening? Ian, I'm so happy. And he he didn't, to him it wasn't, I mean, he didn't know what had happened over the last 10 days, I guess. So he started talking about songs that I could get him for his iPod that he had with him and might be here for a little bit yet and, you know, how can he stay not bored. We had a great conversation. And I remember as I was turning to leave and I prayed for him, but really I was just, I just was like, Ian, Ian. And I prayed for him and as I turned to leave, he went, hey, hey, Todd. I'm like, yeah. And I didn't know in ICU, I guess, because thankfully I've never sat in a bed in ICU, so I don't know what the patient is looking at. But in this case, just a little space of wall between the sliding door and up higher, and there was a flat screen TV on there. And Ian said, hey, Todd. I'm like, yeah. And he points at the screen and he goes, Zoolander. <laughs> Some of you will know that movie. That was spring of 2011, the same time the Canucks were making their run to the Stanley Cup. We were about to move. Late spring, Ian's resurrection. And in the early summer on July 28th, or July 18th, Joyce died. Here's why I tell this story like this as we begin to talk about healing. You can't understand God apart from people. I mean, Christian teaching of God. And in some of your upbringing and teaching, people have tried to teach you about God apart from people. His holiness, his righteousness, he's other than us. That's all true. But God, we know this because of Jesus Christ, God has chosen not to be God without people, without relationship with And so if you want to know about healing, you can't just say, well, here's the concepts of healing. You have to talk about Ian and Joyce. Ian was healed, right? Ian might say, well, not fully. 
And Joyce died. Briefly introduce Matthew chapter 9, still relatively early in Jesus' ministry and many healing stories. And you saw it. You heard it. Here and in other places in the Gospels, this line, he healed all their diseases. That note that already in Jesus Christ the kingdom is present now and he can heal and he does heal. But then you have Revelation 21.4, which will to some degree counter this. He healed all their diseases. But Revelation 21.4, and it's a nice encouraging verse, isn't it? It says, one day every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. Which means what? In the meantime, there is Already and not yet. So what do we say about healing? What do you believe about healing? Should everybody be healed if they have enough faith? I guess Joyce didn't have enough and Ian did. Please, please. In the Matthew passages, even after Jesus says something like, you've been healed according to your faith, do you believe I can do this? He says to these blind men. And then after he heals them, it says he sternly warned them, don't go tell people about this. That's curious. Why would he say that? Why would he not seek to draw attention to the healings rather than to diminish the attention? It could be that he didn't want to get noticed by the powers that be. I certainly believe that it's an indication that this physical healing didn't encompass the heart of his ministry. The heart of his ministry was to go to the cross and give his life. And if he became just this person that can, you know, meet all your needs transactionally, you have enough faith, you're healed. Then we wouldn't really know what Jesus really came for. Healing, to introduce this, and we'll follow it up next week. There are two ends to the continuum in terms of what you believe about healing, particularly physical healing, But we'll get into the nature of it next week. On one end of the continuum, let's put it over here. You have that all people can be healed of all physical suffering if they just have enough faith. That's one end of the continuum. So there would be some people that hold that view, and they would back it up with particular interpretation of Scripture. In this section of Matthew, you have according to your faith. Jesus says. It's verses like that that these people use to say, well, if you have enough faith, you can be healed. Some of you may have been in circles like that. Historically, now I'm not saying biblically, but historically through decades and centuries, there was a peace added to this group. And that peace was, not only can you be relieved of all physical suffering, but you should have material blessing as well. So God will heal you of your suffering and bless you in terms of wealth, particularly wealth, if you just have enough faith. That's one end of the continuum. Now, you're going to get, you know, where I'm at. I'm, I don't think I'm on either continuum, but you'll see. Um, this way of thinking actually doesn't initially come from Scripture. I, I know the history of this, okay? I can walk you through it. This way of thinking is not something that was present hundreds and hundreds of years ago in large Christian gatherings, Even when they believed in healing, they believed in physical healing. We go to Nepal and we see physical healings. It's a key key part of what's happening there. But there's also many people that aren't healed. But where this came from, the idea that everybody should be healed if they just have enough faith, actually comes from 19th century, late 1800s, 
early 1900s metaphysics. It's a philosophy, a way of seeing the world. The idea back then, particularly before World War I, this can make sense to you, right, was that everything is just getting better. And if you can just visualize all the best things, now this is way apart from Scripture. If you can just visualize the best things, then you can have them. In other words, if you have enough belief, then you'll have good things. So what happened was some elements of the Christian church grabbed onto that way of thinking and began to build a theology around it. That's one end of the coin, one end of the continuum. The other end, and I won't go into that much detail with this one, is simply to say, in terms of physical healing, miraculous, nope. Right? Why would you believe in something so crazy? And there's a theology that can be built around this, too. And actually, the history of this church, so if you look at where we're going to go in the next 10, hopefully 10, 15, 20 years, what kind of new ministry there will be, we need to get some of this stuff sorted out. The history of this church, there's a word called, now you go home with a nice, big, important word, dispensational. It means that there are different dispensations of time. And in some times, some things exist, but in other times, they don't. So they would read those stories of miraculous healing in the Bible, and they would say, that was for the age of the apostles. And speaking in tongues and whatever else, we're not in that age anymore, so those things don't happen. That's way on the other end of the continuum. And a whole theology was built around that. So the question is, where are we at? Where do you think, as a church... We pray for people's healing, so we must believe that God can heal. I think maybe we don't believe it enough. We don't see it enough or expect it enough. And I think we could use to have more faith. But I also think that as we pray and trust in God, we need to understand that sometimes people aren't healed, and that doesn't mean a failure of faith on their part or our part. If someone tells you, that all people should be healed if they just have enough faith. Be gentle with them, but... And if someone tells you that physical healing can never happen, be gentle with them, but... Zach Vanderlyn, we've been praying for him with his eye. And he went in for a checkup recently. And you hear these stories, right? And the doctor did the tests and brought them out. And Mir knows this. She was there and it matters immensely to her. And the doctor said, I can't believe it. He's better. A key in this conversation we'll get to next week is what is the nature of healing? What does God mean when he says you'll be healed? Because I know what you think. See, you're so self-centered and so am I that when I say healed, I think of the physical things that are bothering me right now or certainly if you have an illness or have a loved one that has an illness, you right away go, healing means that's fixed. Is it possible that God has a bigger view of healing than you do? Was Ian healed? Yeah. Why does he have a migraine today? I guess he wasn't really healed. Where's the line? I'll give you two little bits as we close that we'll get to next week. One place we're going to find this, read these texts in Matthew, Jesus healing people, telling them not to tell anyone, is the, the two words we have in English, healing and salvation. In the New Testament, those are often the same word, healing and salvation. 
So there's something there for us to consider. It's moving us away from the self-focus. The other thing, and this is one that's really foreign in our culture. In Scripture, the word healing is also connected to a corporate expression often. In other words, not simply that I am healed, but that we are healed. And we experience it together. These are things that are rather foreign to us in our thinking. I do believe we need to be more open to it. To see people asking for healing prayer. However, as much as I have any influence as a minister here, as much as I can affect this, we will not allow healing to be set up as an idol. So I'll give you a picture as we close. You pray. Somebody's sick. You get them up here or at the back, right? You usually pray at the back for some of you. Gather around and you pray for them. And somebody comes in and they're a loud prayer. Some of you are here. By the way, we've got some ones that are here and some twos that are here. Most of us are probably in between in terms of that continuum. But somebody comes in and they're a one or close to a one. And they're like, dear Lord Jesus, I declare in the name of, in your name, Lord Jesus, break these two. You know, you know those kinds of prayers, right? Those are good, great prayers. Not mocking it in any way. But the trouble is, because those are really loud prayers, what happens is the rest, sometimes the rest of the people that are praying go, okay, I guess they're in charge now. Do you know what we need both? We need both. We need more people who loudly declare, I say no to this. In Jesus' name, heal this. And then we need that quiet, reflective prayer who quietly says, Lord Jesus Christ, be with Bill. Because I don't get this. And we serve together. So I want you to be open. It's not theology or a stance. You understand that? Here's what Sutherland Church believes about healing. It's that we know that we experience this together. So you ask me or somebody else, what do you believe about healing? And I'll probably tell you the story of Ian and Joyce. Come, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So God bless us in this time. I thank you for my friend Ian, who I still I I think you might know this but maybe not I still look up to he's a blessing in my life and our lives here he is a reminder of your goodness and your grace and he is certainly a reminder of the already and not yet of the kingdom that you have brought him back to life but that he still has the struggles of this life. Help us as we move forward as a church to know that our views on things are not declared by theological stances, but in our relationships one with the other. And so I pray for those in this place who right now even are saying, we need more, more, more. I thank you for them, and I pray that they would feel free to minister here. Open up new avenues of service and prayer for them so that we could see your glory. And thank you that that we are together in this. And I pray for those who are not of that way of expression of faith, that are more quiet in their prayers, maybe a little more unsure of things like miraculous healing. 
And I pray that we would serve you together because I know this, we need both. Come, Holy Spirit. And thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for that last bit of the Matthew reading. Because I know that the key is found in that. That after these healings, the Scripture declares that you looked out at the people and you had compassion on them. That is where we will know you, Lord Jesus Christ. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.